gaps in the state of health. We define health a bit differently in the world of functional and anti-aging medicine. We look at problems from a different perspective. It is not standard of care as the mainstream perceives it, but rather it becomes its own standard, a different approach, one that many patients are embracing and many doctors are practicing. So part of our topic today is to contrast that with standard of care therapy. We're going to talk about that for a few minutes, and if time allows, we'll talk about women's sexual health as well, highlighting hormone therapy. Whole time will be about 20 minutes. So when it comes to functional medicine, a lot of us believe that one of the core elements of good health resides in gastrointestinal health. If your gut is healthy, then it supports your health. Now there are conditions such as ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease. Some of these fall into the cluster of illnesses described as autoimmune diseases. In the late 1990s, a new class of drugs came to market. These are called the biologicals, and they were designed to help people battle autoimmune processes. This is when your immune system attacks itself, attacks your own cells with negative consequence. Things like arthritis, things like psoriasis, things like inflammatory bowel disease. These biologicals have become a standard of care when it comes to those kind of medical conditions. We have great reservations about their use at intellectual medicine, as do many of my colleagues in the functional medicine world. We believe that in some cases, there are better approaches that should be considered prior to resorting to such aggressive agents. Now, I've highlighted a headline from um, the newspaper. This is from USA Today, a recent headline that describes one of the consequences of the biological medicines. Since 2004, when they came to market, 34,000 deaths have been associated with their use. Over a million complications associated with their use 500,000 of which are deemed to be serious. These drugs are derived from biological agents, thus their name. They are intended to dampen and weaken the immune system in a way that alleviates symptom. The problem when you weaken the immune system is you open the door to a host of other complications. Pneumonia, necrotizing fasciitis or the flesh-eating infections, fungal infections, and even cancer, all become much more prevalent. It's a tough dilemma for patients and for doctors when these symptoms are so pervasive. Some of them, like irritable bowel, are nonspecific. The gut is bloating, you have gas, you have diarrhea, you have constipation, perhaps even at times from bleeding. Symptoms can be really annoying, if not life-altering. So the role for the medication certainly can be understood. One of the problems, as we see it, is the lack of focus on nutrition, on diet, and on healthy eating patterns that could otherwise diminish some of these phenomena. In the world of functional medicine and even conventional medicine, there's something known as the leaky gut syndrome. The leaky gut is not diarrhea. It is when the lining of the intestine develops gaps between the cells. Normally, the junctions are very tight. Each cell snuggles up next to the other one. In cases of inflammation, 
you get these little microscopic gaps between the cells. And those enable partially digested material to get through the wall of the intestine and into the circulatory system. Referred to as chyme, C-H-Y-M-E, this is a partially digested food particles, before they are processed fully and before they are properly absorbed through the intestinal wall and transported to the liver for processing, they can go directly into the bloodstream. When that occurs, the immune system identifies it as a foreign protein and can attack it. And that can set off this cascade of autoimmune phenomenon that we see with things like uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, we mentioned bowel issues, skin inflammation. Where there is skin inflammation from acne to psoriatic arthritis to just undiagnosed rashes in general, there often is an association of leaky gut. To get to the base of that requires a lot of reflective work. In some cases, food inflammations testing is worth doing. So we can determine not necessarily what foods people are allergic to, but rather which foods instigate an inflammatory reaction within the person. There are some supplements that we use that can be helpful in mitigating inflammation. Simply put, there are many steps in front of the biologicals. Why are they so pervasive? Why are they so widely prescribed? You know, in functional medicine, there is a profound discriminatory angle with regard to what we do in the eyes of officialdom, official medical super uh, agencies. Conventional doctors look at us a little bit sideways because they don't understand what we do in many cases. Nutritional study is a deep part of what we do. Understanding the role of high-dose vitamins and supplements is part of what we understand and apply. Why? Because they're safe. Why? Because they can work for many patients. And in our view, they should precede a lot of the biological drugs. But when you have a powerful lobby like pharmaceutical companies charging up to $40,000 per year for the biologicals, and you have a medical community that is following standard of care therapy, if you prescribe a biological and an adverse consequence occurs, you're kind of safe because you're practicing standard of care medicine. Can you imagine if we were doing intravenous vitamin therapy and 34,000 people died, do you think we'd be open tomorrow? And we probably shouldn't be. And yet this goes on and it's barely a ripple on the pond. Why? It is an intrinsic bias within medicine. That which has been FDA approved, that which conventional medicine is deemed standard of care, becomes defensive and protected to a certain degree. On the other hand, when you're innovatively investing time, energy, and contemplating alternative approaches, you do so with a reflexive negativity on the part of conventional medicine. Chelation therapy, unless a doctor is well-read and up-to-date on that therapy, gets a negative feedback. Functional medicine itself, if you Google functional medicine, there's enormous criticism from conventional medicine coming out of the, of the literature and coming out of their general temperament towards it. Not everything fits into a five-minute appointment. Not everything fits into a drug therapy paradigm. So functional medicine, we believe, should be your pathway 
if you've got autoimmune disorders. Functional medicine is practiced by many board-certified physicians like me. I'm board-certified in conventional medicine in family practice. There are other doctors that have this type of background, and you can find them with, by Googling functional medicine. Wouldn't you say, Shan? I would. I'd probably go to ACAM or A4M. ACAM, Shan is mentioning the American College for the Advancement of Medicine, ACAM, is an organization of innovative doctors like me that are looking for different ways forward. And A4M, the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, A4M, capital A, the number four, capital M. If you Google those two um, organizations, you can find a uh, listing of doctors that have trained with them and are open-minded to this approach to therapy. And also the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM, another good organization. Tens of thousands of doctors have joined these movements, and they do so, ladies and gentlemen, at significant personal risk. The bias within mainstream medicine has now affected departments of health across the nation, and they are not favorably inclined towards doctors practicing this style of medicine. And they look for opportunities to intervene and to abort and disrupt their practice. Why? $40,000 a year, why? Right? Imagine if we were able to address all of these patients' needs and either get them off these drugs or not need them in the first place. There will never be a standard of care that puts high-dose vitamin therapy in front of drug therapy. There is no pathway of approval through the FDA. There is no financial incentive behind the use of these approaches. It's incumbent upon you, in partnership with doctors like me and my colleagues, to consider this approach if it fits your philosophy. And that's super important. Shan, do I have time to pivot a little bit for women's sexual health? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. I'm going to sweep this off the board. There we go. It's off the board, but it's not gone as an issue, and it'll be back. Let's talk about some primary issues in women's health. Number one becomes midlife depletion of hormone. That happens at or about the 30s and progresses unto the 40s. Many women are under the mistaken notion that their menopause is a singular event that occurs when they stop their menstrual bleeding. Years prior to that, sometimes decade or more prior to that, hormones begin to shift in a way that affects mental, physical, and sexual health. Testosterone levels begin to decline in the 30s. Progesterone levels decline. Estrogen levels tend to linger at a more appropriate level. Thus, you can still have your menstrual cycle happening while you're becoming testosterone deficient. How do you know if that's happening? There are no good ranges of normal for testosterone in women. It hasn't been extensively studied, although we have gained many years of clinical experience with its use. So here are the symptoms to monitor. Brain fog or slowing of cognitive function. Some patients notice their abilities mathematically diminish, their instant recall diminishes, they notice their brain just a tad slower. A a decrease in your resilience to stress and anxiety. Some women especially noting that they were capable of processing stressors earlier in their life are now faced with anxiety, depression, and other psychological symptoms. 
before you go on Prozac or Xanax, consider hormonal therapy. It's worth the reflection. Increased body fat, decreased muscle mass, decreased energy, decreased sex drive, decreased vaginal health, difficulty achieving orgasm. We're up to eight symptoms. These are all signs, possible signs of low testosterone. Now, you cannot make a judgment about adequacy of testosterone strictly by a blood test. The lab that we use has a normal range for women's testosterone that goes from zero to 75. Think about that. How in the world can the absence of testosterone be considered within a normal range? The point is that there is no clear understanding nor a focus on women's hormonal health in this regard. It's simply considered not worthy of medical attention. And if you bring these symptoms up to a doctor that is not educated in how to help you with them, they're likely to tell you, get used to it, this is life, you're busy, you're stressed, this is normal. Well, we challenge that summary. It may be common, it may be inevitable, but it doesn't need to be accepted. The great fear factor, will hormones cause cancer? This has damaged generations of women. The Women's Health Initiative was performed back in the 1990s. The headline came through, Hormones Increase Breast Cancer Risk. When you read that study closely and you look at where the increased risk occurred, it happened exclusively in the women who were on artificial progesterone, medroxyprogesterone in particular. The women who were only on estrogen had no increased breast cancer risk. Nobody was on testosterone because it wasn't considered worthy of study back then. In fact, it's still not considered worthy of study. In the years since, this Women's Health Initiative has been reinterpreted. Many of us feel that the reaction regarding breast cancer was profoundly overstated and that it slanted the risk-benefit analysis. Everything in medicine is a risk-benefit analysis. Nothing comes without potential downside. Nothing. We talked a moment ago about the biologicals. Does it mean you should never use them? No. Does it mean you should be cautious and delay in their use? We think so. How about with regard to hormone therapy? We just described a range of symptoms that are inevitable, that only an individual can decide whether or not they're worthy of addressing. What about the risk side of that equation? What about breast cancer? Unfortunately, breast cancer is extraordinarily common in America. You can acquire with or without hormone therapy being implemented. And the evidence that hormone therapy is a powerful accelerator of breast cancer is weak at best. We believe properly managed that bioidentical hormones do not present that same risk. There was a study done in 2007, commonly referred to as the Fournier study after the author that looked at different types of hormones and found a variable risk regarding estrogen progesterone replacement depending on the type and the route of hormone administration. The artificial hormones administered orally seem to correlate with the greatest risk for cancer and blood clotting. Bioidenticals uh, administered non-orally, either as a pellet or as a cream, did not harbor that same level of risk. Every one of you has to make your own decisions. And because there is no guaranteed path forward, 
only you can decide this risk benefit. However, it's worthy of getting real balanced information. If a doctor recoils in horror and says, get off hormones, they're going to cause cancer, that is not a tempered nor a balanced and thought out opinion in my view. A doctor who's willing to contemplate risk benefit with you, given the evidence at hand, that's the point of reflection. And no hormones in our view ought not to be used for a couple of years just to comfortably get you through your menopause, past your hot flashes, and then let you decay. Shannon posted information not too long ago about the correlation between hormone depletion and dementia. That correlation is compelling. This connection between hormone levels and brain health is strong. Simply put, we believe replacing hormones at the right time in life may well be a component of protecting the brain against dementia. Now, many women feel comfortable, I should say more comfortable, discussing hormonal issues with a well-trained progressive female provider. And Shannon Petteruti at Intellectual Medicine, a nurse practitioner and specialist in bioidentical hormone therapy, is prepared to address that need. So whether you're um, inclined toward discussing this with a female, a male, it's worthy of a conversation. And if your family doc, if your gynecologist is willing to consider using this approach, then kudos to them. We feel that everybody should be on hormones at some point in their lives, unless there's a compelling reason not to be. And in the case of women, we feel the age to begin is typically no later than 50, sometimes even younger. So give this further reflection. The literature's there, it's at our website. The uh, information about hormone therapy is broad, it's deep. And yes, at times there are conflicts of a thought and opinion, as there always are in medicine. The information is at hand. The standard of care is forming and evolving. We believe the new standard of care in anti-aging anti medicine should include hormone replacement at the appropriate time, unless there is a compelling reason to not do that. So today, we talked about standards of care. One that is well-established, biologicals, that have enormous potential for risk. The other that remains unestablished, in essence, a non-standard of care approach, functional medicine that has helped tens of thousands of patients with much lower risk profile, ironically, than standard of care. So there's a role for both of these. Intellectual medicine reaches out to both sides, to all sides, including conventional care, integrating the best of all. Well, I hope this has been informational. We'll talk more about women's health in the weeks to come. In fact, next week, Sham will talk more about sexual responsiveness and ways to address that and some of the factors that, that feed into that. I'm Dr. Steve Petteruti. This is Intellectual Medicine. Thanks for tuning in.